you're very welcome to the 13th uh, for Idle Hands podcast. Uh, welcome back, Terry. Well, welcome back, Michael. Could be unlucky for some, but hopefully not. The 13th. Well, hopefully not. Not unlucky for our guest today with uh, uh, Rod and Marcus, who are here to well um, help us along today. Um, they've been involved in an interview that we did with uh, Andy Kershaw, which is one of today's highlights. Uh, but they're also going to review the new album from Bob Dylan, which is Rough and Rowdy Ways. We've got a couple other bits, Terry. Yeah, we're going to just talk through, you know, uh, lockdown news, uh, a bit about America. Mrs. Bono pops up again. Um, Jack, yeah. Jack Charlton, some gigs that are going on online. And uh, as you said, the big one is Mr. Kershaw, which we managed to get. And I'll just like to, before we go into it, I'll, I'll do it when we get to my Andy Kershaw. We'll crack on apparently, so. So it is a bit strange because you're right, the pubs are open now. I mean, has anybody been to a beer garden or? No. No? No. (laughs) No. Well, I I went to one, it seems a bit needy. I went on day one last Monday. Um, My older son had a booking made and then went offshore and at Fierce Bar outside. So I tagged along to my son number two to that. And it was a fairly pleasant experience. I mean, there was plenty of distancing. We were outside under an umbrella, but the weather was nice. Um, they had like beer barrels set up on their sides with, with an umbrella and you went inside two at a time to order drinks, you know, not, not again, not together, but yeah, I thought it was pretty good. And I mean, the nearest to me is the Manorfield Cricket Club and it had 200 folk yesterday. So uh, 200, 200. Yeah. Apparently that was this capacity and they were full on Saturday and they were full yesterday. And on Saturday they ran out of tenants um, <laughs> and, <laughs> And had to Is get that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, they got an alternative lager supply from Brewtoon and Peterhead, so um, I didn't go down, but um, and it, it, they've got loads of space. I mean, they have loads of space, but uh, but I think the inside's open this week, so inside today, shopping centre's open today, um, nail bars, which I'm sure you're excited for, Michael. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then pubs open inside on Wednesdays. I'm not keen on at all, really. I, I think yeah. I, I like the outside, but but not not the inside. But I mean, but it's been a great shot in the arm to the marquee hire um, uh, company. <laughs> so actually, in fairness to them, they they probably had a really torrid time for the last couple of months because every single event going has obviously been uh, yeah. cancelled for obvious yeah. reasons. Yeah, and I guess you're yeah, right. Yeah, because I guess these people are renting these marquees; they're not buying them, are they? I wouldn't imagine. That's a good point. Um, but like Aberdeen, you know, number tens looks quite nice. It's in the, in the little grass bit there, just in front of the, front of the rest of the bar restaurant. Anyway, um, um, Dutch Mill was like that. The same down at um, the Chester, which is more for dining, I think. Um, yeah. My favourite beer garden is the the Grill. <laughs> uh, it's got a lovely tent. Looks like it comes straight out of that. What's that Scottish show? Still game. Um, yeah. You can imagine that in there. And then of course you've got Soul Bar, which actually. My son went to and said it was all right once you got in, but the queue was a bit busy and um, there wasn't a lot of you know there wasn't a lot of distancing in the queue and stuff. And um, they got it, and it's open a bit later as well because it's they, they, they've got a bit outside which is open later, so eleven o'clock. But no, yeah. but I guess it's the start of lockdown. And here's a statistic for you, or a date rather. Remember when Boris changed it to stay alert? Yeah. Do you know when that was? Well, it, it feels like it's probably about six or eight weeks ago now, is it? It was May the tenth. It was two months ago. Yeah. I did a thing today. I went through my Twitter timeline for the last three months looking for something, and I was just going through and I found that. And I thought that was quite a shock, actually, looking back how long ago it was, actually. So, but I mean, have we finished in lockdown? Yeah, but some places are far from finished, aren't they? I mean, uh, uh, a couple of uh, horrendous um, uh, bits of news from the states. Obviously, they're uh, 
number of um, reported infections is going through the roof exponentially. And um, Americans uh, apparently are celebrating uh, by going to COVID parties and the like. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, did, I did that being you go along uh, with a bunch of, I think, random strangers or possibly friends. And it's the first person to catch COVID kind of wins. I'm not sure what he wins, but the guy in the news today from that was obviously he tragically died of, 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 the, of the disease. But, I mean, who in their right minds would think about that? But I saw Florida today had a quarter of all new cases in America. Um, yeah. And I don't know if you saw the video of people going into Disney World at the weekend with their masks on and stuff. And I'm just thinking, why would you even think about that, though? Yeah, and it's full of retirement uh, resorts, Florida, isn't it? It's a place Americans retire to, so the people there are, you know, potentially quite vulnerable. So uh, this is really bad news for them. Absolutely, and the story, and the story you picked up on was that Americans trying to go somewhere else. I mean, they, they basically can't. Yeah, <laughs> they can't. They can't go anywhere. And um, there's a, a, a very telling map which uh, shows what it was like beforehand in terms of where they could go, which was uh, essentially anywhere. Uh, and now they can go to Tanzania, they can go to a couple of countries in the Balkans and a few uh, Caribbean islands, and that's it. You know, because anywhere they, else, they, they've got to go into quarantine. Or they, they're not they, in. They, they can't even go to Mexico, I don't think. I think Mexico. No. no. So, but, um, but I guess. No, sorry, they, they can't go to Mexico. Oh, they sorry, can't, they okay, can't. Okay. In Central America, the other countries, they can't. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, they just seem to have so many cases and it seems to be completely out of control. And they were just, they were just talking, the new, Florida was a big headline, but Arizona as well was the other one with, um, they were showing um, downtown Phoenix on Saturday night it was just like a normal, normal weekend and cases, yeah. cases are going through the roof, you know. And I don't see any of that behavior in Scotland. Uh, and, what, and, and Mex- Mexicans might be a bit keener on building that wall now. <laughs> They might want to pay to do it themselves, actually, sort of thing. But, <laughs> but no, it seems everywhere. I mean, just you know, obviously Wales is catching up, but I mean, Northern Ireland's been kind of ahead of Scotland. Scotland's kind of catching up with the rest of the UK now. But um, you know, slowly, slowly. I mean, a lot of people are doing outside theatres were allowed to open for for events for opera and stuff. So, um, but but not singing apparently. Although opera's yeah. opera's singing, I guess. But um, yeah, I don't know. I can't uh, think how that's going to go, but. Um, Any thoughts on this, Rod and Marcus? Uh, it's quite funny. I mean, America's probably the one place on our travel list that we really want to go back to. Well, that and Italy. But there's just um, no possibility of anything for the. I mean, the way things are going, probably next year's out. Uh, yeah. yeah, I would like to even think about that. But of course, all, I mean, traditionally in Aberdeen in, in October, it's Florida where everyone heads to, but. I mean, not 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 this year. Italy is fairly seems to be fairly safe at the minute. Yes, yeah. yeah. No, I'm doing um, an interview just now with uh, a guy who played drums on one of the sessions for Dylan's Desire album, and he's in his seventies now. He lives just outside Atlanta, and he said, "Just the atmosphere is terrible there. It's a horrible place to be, and you just worry about everything." Yeah, I, I mean. Speaking of that, it's funny, the one thing I saw today also in the UK was that the National Trust properties are opening up, and the one point they made very well was the fact that a lot of the volunteers who help with the National Trust are over 70, so there's a double risk, not just the people coming, but also the people that are mm-hmm. already working there, but but the, the US, yeah. I just think, is a, yeah, it's a no-go, I mean, but of course, even Spain's out for Scottish people at the minute. I mean, we can't, Scotland's not allowed to travel yeah. to Spain for two weeks, if, or, or like quarantine. But yeah, yeah. Uh, although I just saw there's a Scottish news crew at Newcastle Airport at the weekend, 
um, covering all the Scots who had driven to Newcastle to fly to Spain. <laughs> and they were all giving sort of little cheeky waves to the camera sort of thing with their sort of, you know, Scottish T-shirts on and everything. So yeah. that, uh... Quarantine for the impossible. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of rights of way, uh, Bono and Vicky seem to have uh, lodged a running order. Uh, yeah. For three decades, Ali Hewson, a businesswoman and activist, activist, the rock singer Bono, claims to have used some steps railway line to pass through a collection of disused beach houses and reach the sea. So now she's found there's a fence there and making plans by her uh, to actually um, build on the land um, deny her right of way. Yeah, and I hadn't, I hadn't realised that next the guy Gavin Friday lives next door. Um, and he's he's yeah. taking he's taking the same action apparently at this developer. Oh, he's Bono's cousin, isn't he? I think. Oh, he's he's a friend. He's a friend of Bono's. Almost uh, side by side, see the wood. And um, I think um, he's probably living there. Because... Oh, you think? Yeah, so, I mean that's a really under eleven. You're talking most. He's a extension to it. Uh, yeah. He's not been very productive. Uh, output would be my observation. Yeah, because the guy, the owner was to build like a little cafe and stuff and everything, and apparently he got permission through the normal, you know, through the county council, however you would do it in Dublin. Um, but of course, Mrs. Bono now has taken, taken uh, her leave of her senses and decided to complain about it. So, But maybe she just yeah. wants to keep Bono in the news. Uh, oh, because uh, I think the, the daughter's uh, shift on the luminaries is probably coming to a uh, welcome end, so... <laughs> I, I, I caught the end of that last night, by the way, or the end of the show, and yeah, it makes no sense to me now, obviously, but not not a fan of that again. We've talked about that before, mind you. So, but uh, but that leads into another little nice, well, not not so nice, but very sad Irish story, though, I guess. Yes, Big Jack is gone. Yeah, I mean, he was a fair old, he was a fair old age, wasn't he? Uh, he was eighty five, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, it, it, it's hard to estimate the impact that that guy had on um, Irish society in the last 30 years. I mean, it sounds like an um, exaggeration. Uh, days before, you know, uh, games or more, or more like odysseys, really, in the European Championships and the World Cup, uh, Ireland was, um, you know, probably a, quite a conservative place, not just in terms of, uh, you know, politics or religion or things like that, but just in terms of the right look. And this, um, you know, trips to uh, the tournaments open the eyes really you know to uh, different cultures different food and foreign travel so it was all a bit of to him and you were there I was so in 1990 we were on holiday in uh, the, in, in Italy and uh, we got from the Eurocar rental guy at Pisa airport um, tickets for the Romania Ireland game and mm -hmm. um, the only downside to this was the Italians were not allowed to sell alcohol on, on match days to any of the foreign fans. Um, but what they were doing was basically the locals were buying the drinks and the fans were giving the locals the money to buy the drinks sort of thing. And we were behind we were behind the goals where the penalty shootout was where Ireland beat Romania to get into the quarterfinals. That was a great day, actually. So, um, But, um, yeah, I mean, but, I mean, he was credited with bringing in the likes of all these players who are not even Irish, like Andy Townsend and so on. Um, from Birmingham, who had an Irish granny, and that was the kind of first of, of that happening, wasn't it? Really, I suppose, kind of widening the net yeah. and so on. But, but uh, yeah, I can't complain about it though. 
Yeah, uh, and um, uh, rest in peace, John. But also uh, somebody else who, who's been bending the rules is Manchester City, and we found out today that they've gone away with it, Terry. Yeah, I mean, you, you made the point to me this morning. It happened. All the teams do it, and I think you're absolutely right. They all do it. But the guy in the BBC and the radio certainly made a good point this morning. Is that what? Where does that leave UEFA now? If they can't win a case where they had all the evidence, um, they had text messages, they had documents. If they can't win that one, that they're going to apparently tear up their fair play and just kind of. Just, just basically let people do what they want, I think. Yeah, but, but uh, you know, there's been an institutionalised uh, support of uh, big football teams in Italy and Spain over the years. You know, they've, uh, the likes of Barcelona, Real Madrid have um, borrowed heaps of money that's been written off and yeah. uh, never really had to declare any of that. So uh, where do you draw the line, really? Just not no, and and the, the 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 problem that UEFA have is they want to, they need to have teams like Manchester City in the competition. They, they, you know, if they have imagine the scenario where they had Sheffield United instead of Manchester City, you know, it wouldn't be as glamorous. They wouldn't get maybe as much for their TV rights and so on. So, um, yep. but it is what it is, and I guess there's no that's just how modern sport works these days. I guess so. I guess so. And um, uh, this week uh, we've not got very much. Of, um, lockdown music news but uh, we're kind of wheezing to the end of this in terms of uh, online events but a good one coming up tomorrow night if we get the podcast out nice and fast Terry no pressure or anything like that uh, Fontaine's DC are doing a gig at Kilmainham uh, I think it's maybe Kilmainham Jail yes. uh, tomorrow night yes. and it's going to be um, broadcast on YouTube at 8 o'clock yeah and it's free I believe yeah. there's no, no, no money to be powered hands with but yeah I believe it's in yeah. the jail so it's a bit like Johnny Cash at San Quinn. It's going to be Fontaine's DC at Kilmanham. <laughs> Except there's no prisoners. There's no prisoners, Terry. <laughs> no, no, no. And actually, saying that, there is another one I saw the other day, actually, which was um, Nick Cave is going to do a gig at the end of July uh, in Hammersmith. No, not Hammersmith. Um, oh, Ali Pali. But you have to pay for that one. I think it's about 15 quid or something for a ticket. And he's going to be solo on his own with a piano, apparently, for a couple of hours so. But uh, no, the Fontaine that should be good. I guess they've got an album out at the end of the month as well, I suppose. So they do, they do. Fine. And um, another man who's uh, not lost for words, um, Nick Cave being a, a good wordsmith. Um, uh, we spoke this week to uh, Andy Kershaw, um, BBC DJ and uh, presenter of Live Aid, amongst other things. Here's our um couple of minutes with Andy. Uh, right, well, we're delighted to, uh, today to be joined by writer and broadcaster Andy Kershaw. Hello, boys. Uh, you're very welcome, Andy. Uh, thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me. Uh, and where have you been holed up for lockdown? What have you been up to over the last couple of months? It hasn't really affected me that much, to be honest with you, because um, my life in normal circumstances is pretty much a solitary one. You know, the life of a, a freelance broadcaster and writer um, you do tend to spend most of your time just working from home, you know, in the preparation of stuff, only occasionally uh, stepping into a, uh, a radio studio or, uh, in, in the case of my TV work in more recent years as a roving reporter for the One Show on BBC One, um, you know, doing the preparation for that at home and then just going out to do the reporting job, the filming um, job. Um, and I did lose all those back in March, and I did do, um, I, I was doing quite a lot of one-man shows in uh, small theatres and art centres, and I, I lost all those overnight, so that had an impact on me, you know, I lost all my work, really, yeah. um, and 
But otherwise, day to day, you know, because so much of my life is spent at home anyway, uh, I've just got on with stuff like I've done an awful lot of DIY. <laughs> um, I, I've I've done uh, more gardening this year than I would normally do. And uh, regardless of the government's uh, preposterous restrictions back in March, I just started to go out fishing a lot. Um, and I don't know why, for the first two or three months, fishing was banned. Uh, I went into the local post office to buy uh, what you, it's compulsory that you have one. It's called a national rod license, which you have to renew every year in the post office. I went into the post office in March and said, hello, I'd like to renew my national rod license, please. She said, I can't sell you one. I said, why not? She said, we're not allowed to because uh, fishing has been banned. I said, not your fault. You don't make the rules. I said, but, um, you know, can you pass on to your superiors that I cannot think of an activity more solitary than fishing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How on earth is fishing a, a menace to the general population? So I just went anyway. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that, really. I mean, I mean, fish don't pass on the virus. We're not known to no, be no, it. No, no, no. And when you're fishing, the last thing you want is to be in a huddle with other people. Um, so I just, I just, I just ignored it and just, you know, we've lost all capacity for common sense. I think these days, <laughs> um, or, or, or the government presumes we've lost all capacity for common sense because it has yeah. none of its own. <laughs> well, I think that's true. And obviously, one of the things we all miss at the minute is actually, you know going to, to to concerts and festivals and so on. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, I lost all my festival work. I had some, D, some DJ, <coughs> DJ gigs at summer festivals and they went. Yeah, and, I, and yeah, of course, I've missed gigs like, like you guys. Yeah. yeah. But what, I mean, so looking at your history then, Andy, I mean, going back from booking bands at Leeds Uni um, to, to, to jumping into, and I'm sure there's a gap in the middle, but to, to backstage manager at the Stones at Roundhay Park. Yeah, um, in 85, yeah. Yeah, because me and Michael went to the Stones gig in Slane Castle in Dublin the day before, and from that into Okay Whistle Test. I mean, how did, how did that all happen? That seems a, a fantastic transition. All, all happy accidents, really. Right. Um, and I think it. if you're looking for... I've got, obviously, I had no qualification for any of these things. You know, when I did my first um, broadcast for the old Grey Whistle Test, I'd never been on television before in my life. Uh, and, it, you know, it was live. Um I just fell into them. And I think if you're looking for a, an explanation for why that happened, the one thing I can, I keep, I, I, you know, I, I can only come back to is enthusiasm. And right. that got, that got spotted in, in various different places, whether it was at Leeds university, which led me to become the, um, the student uh, officer who, who booked all the groups and ran all the concerts or uh, then, you know, I suppose the next break after that, was was working with Billy Bragg as his driver, tour manager, and roadie all rolled into one, uh, and that was because you know I heard Billy's first I bought Billy's first EP and sent him basically a fan letter. And the next thing I knew, he was he was staying he was staying on my floor in the flat in Leeds. And soon after that, you know, I'm driving him not just around the UK but all over Europe. Uh, and from there, you know, I took Billy to the whistle test in the early spring of. 1984 for his first appearance on the programme and in the nature of television you spend you know we spent most of the day sort of standing around the studio waiting for something to happen and the producer ended up offering me a job as presenter I mean that's, that's how mad it was 
I mean, I wish, yeah. I, wish I, I wish I could get work so easily now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean the, the look at Western Test was so iconic at the time. I mean, what's the kind of memories of that show to you? I mean, I mean that was just a fantastic music show on a, on a Friday night. So, which I say it was, it, it was like uh, it was such huge fun to work on because it felt like um, it was a, a, a BBC. It was a BBC. Um, music programme driven really by journalism. We were all um, journalists, instinctive journalists, the, pre the presenters and the people that worked on it. So unlike the tube, we weren't at all uh, mesmerised by glamour and celebrity. What mattered to us was good music and whether there was a good story to tell with you know, the film's report. And it was like working on a music programme that was put together by half a dozen pals in the sixth form common room. Or, 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 but only David Hepworth had been made a prefect because <laughs> Mark Ellen and I were too silly to be made prefects. We, 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 we weren't considered serious enough. Right. Cause, 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 there's nothing like that now. I mean, the only thing I can no. think of at the minute is later, maybe, with James yeah, well, Bond. And, don't, don't get me going there. Well, they, oh, actually, right. you see, they killed Whistle Test off in 1987. Janet Street Porter killed it off. When she was head of, it was put in under her department of youth programs, YOOF. Um, and, um, you know, the woman who then went on to work for some other TV channel where she introduced topless darts. Or, or, or was, it the we was it the weather forecast introduced by a stripper? I'm serious. <laughs> yeah. these, were the, these were the broadcasting values of this woman. She killed off Whistle Test. And then, because it, it wasn't, you know, glamorous enough in, in her eyes. Um, and then they had to reinvent it some years later under the guise of later with Jules Holland. Um, but one of the things, that one of the many uh, problems I've got with later with Jules Holland is uh, a thing for which Whistle Test used to get some criticism, which was this business of audience or no audience. And, you know, I think what, what was one of Whistletest's strengths was that there wasn't an audience kind of coming between the performance in the studio and the viewers at home. All right. You know, I think it was better because the performers in the studio were performing just for the viewers. There wasn't, it, it didn't have to be uh, mediated by a studio audience. Or, or rather, they weren't performing through the medium or you weren't watching through the medium of a studio audience. And I always found that that created a real intimacy on Whistle Test, which later with Jules Holland doesn't have because it has all these people like you know standing around gawping at the um, uh, at the musicians. And then you have the problem of him as well because he he can't do an interview to save his life. Um, it's, well, he, he, you know, every interview is to show how what a clever dick he is, rather than to elicit information from <laughs> from his interviewer. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he treats interviews as though there's some kind of comedy performance from him. And, that's, and then there's the infuriating uh, insistence that he perform with nearly everybody who appears on the programme. Now, can you, <laughs> can you imagine when, I don't know, Richard Thompson or R.E.M. or Elvis Costello and the Attractions were live in the Whistle Test studio, and they were on more than one occasion, and I had to introduce them. Can you imagine if I'd turned around to Costello or to Michael Stipe out of R.E.M. and said, you don't mind if I bang along on the triangle on this one, do you? I, I, I was imagining Jules Holland playing along with R.E.M. now on the mm. piano in the background. That would be quite entertaining, maybe. So, But maybe 
given the fact we can't have audiences, maybe the older whistle test time for a reboot now. You know, bring, I, you know I, get, I, I, I get that said to me so often. I, yeah. I, I, re, I really do. Um, and, you know, tell, if television executives lived in the real world, they would bring it back. The problem is, music programmes at the BBC now, BBC television, are made by a clique. And unless you're a member of that clique, and it's very protective of Jules Holland, and they're actually, I think, terrified yeah. of, of, of the affection in which Whistle Test is still held. Because if they were to bring back Whistle Test, um, the, it, 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 such a large proportion of the viewers would say, yeah, they should never have got rid, rid of this. And it's far better than that later with Jules Holland. I think that's what's going on. They're, <laughs> they're terrified of Whistle Test. They had an absolutely appalling Whistle Test night about two or three years ago. I don't know whether you saw it. Yes, Horses, yeah. Horses yeah, by Bob Harris, where they sat around in the studio... With with lots lots of people, many of Danny Baker was one. Somebody who'd never had any connection with the whistle test at all, um, and it was it was all it was just it was really cheap television, you know. And and, and BBC Four's sort of tribute to whistle test was dismissed with what with that one dismal program. Um, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't the best. Was no, I mean, they're, they're terrified of it. If they, if, they, if they brought it back, or if they showed. Um, regularly showed old episodes of Whistle Test as the, some of these satellite TV channels show um, old editions of Top of the Pops. It would just remind people, you see, of how good it was. How and good how, it was. And, 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 and how piss poor later with Jules Holland is. I mean, speaking of how good it was, obviously from that, and I, I'm going to kind of skip over Live Aid because it's such a, a big event we could spend a long time, but going into Radio 1, which was after Live Aid, and then working with John Peel, I mean, how, how was that? That was a fantastic... Well, again, it was, it was you know, similar to me other lucky breaks in that I've been doing the um, I've been doing the whistle test only for about oh 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 but Radio One formed up <coughs> excuse me formed up Trevor Dan who was the producer of Whistle Test and Trevor was also before he started working at the Whistle Test he'd been a, a producer at Radio One and they said to him well oh, Trevor is that that kid you've got doing um, the series this year, uh, this series, has he ever done any television? Uh, has he ever done any radio? And Trevor said, no, I don't think he has. They said, well, take him in the studio, Trevor, with a pile of his favourite records. You know what you're doing, old chap. And run a tape and let's see what he can do. So this we did. And the, ne <clears throat> the next thing I knew, I was a Radio 1 DJ. But a Radio 1 DJ, if that wasn't lucky enough, um, without even trying to become a Radio 1 DJ, never had any ambitions to become one. Um, uh, that that was one lucky stroke. But the two components, I think, which made it really, really special, was that I joined up on the understanding that I would choose all the music I played. Um, I, I couldn't do a radio program if somebody else was telling me what to play. You know, if I've got one musical skill, is I think that I've got good ears and good taste. And so they said yes to that. I could choose all my own records. And then, of course, the, uh, the, the luckiest element of all was that um, they billeted me to uh, join those two broadcasting giants, John's uh, Peel and Walters. Uh, Walters is our, our shared producer between me and Peel. In, um, in the words overused, but in this case, it's entirely appropriate, in the legendary Room 318, which was this... <laughs> sort of eight foot by eight foot um, cell 
um, that had previously been occupied only by Peel and Walters since Queen Anne was on the throne. Uh, <laughs> and in, 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 into this partnership, I was I was introduced as as um, you know the, the new kid on the block, and um, um, yeah, and, and to have Walters who embodied not only was he the, the, the most naturally funny man I have ever met, uh, but he also embodied. Um, really the best of the BBC, uh, the, the BBC Rethian public service broadcasting values. And he became our great defender and protector against the imbecilities uh, and the inanities of, of Radio 1 management. Okay. <laughs> Walters, Walters was once asked, I think it was by Gillian Reynolds, the, the lovely veteran radio critic of the Daily Telegraph. She said, so, John... Um, you and Peel had been together for all those years, just the two of you in this office. What was it like when um, Andy arrived, when they put Andy in, in your charge and into room 318 with you? He said, well, Gillian, he said, there we were, me and Peel. He said, rather like an elderly couple, twilight in our lives, armchairs either side of the hearth, when suddenly, and against all medical probability, we had a child. <laughs> <laughs> he was a great man, Walters. Great. Man. I, I saw a quote from him actually. It was like they were, what you were playing was wasn't what the public wanted, but you were playing what the public didn't know what it well, wanted. Yet, yet. That, not, that, he said that to us when he came down in a state of blustering exasperation from a Radio One management meeting where they'd been going on about oh Peel's playing a bloody old racket from Monday to Thursday, and that boy Kershaw. They actually said this. Uh, the boy Kershaw's playing far too much music from Bongo Bongo Land. And uh, <laughs> Walter said, so I told them, I told them. So, so Peel and I said, go on, what did he say? And he said, I told them. And he was speaking, you know, particularly of the two programmes uh, in uh, under his charge, mine and Peel's. But he was also speaking generally about the role of the BBC. And it's the best definition I've ever heard for it. You, you're almost uh, bang on with your, your quote. He said, we're not here to give people what they want. We're here to give people what they didn't know they wanted. That's it, that's it. And, of course, that was the ethos underlying uh, both Peel's programmes and my programmes. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of lost. I guess Radio 6 is kind of the closest that comes to that, right, isn't it? Yeah. To a point. Radio 6 is a, you know, it could be so much better. Um it's it's full of people who can't broadcast, and it's full of people who are um, just sheep when it comes to music. They they don't um, sort of they don't lead. You know, they're, right. they're, they're they're just following trends. Too many of them because they haven't got the courage of their own convictions nor their own taste to be able to say no. I don't care what back in those days. More particularly, I used to think. <clears throat> I don't give a bugger what the enemy thinks is good or not. I'll decide what's good. And I used to just, you know, play what I thought was good uh, from any era. You know, you remember what the programme was like. You might be you might be listening to uh, some exciting new rock band, and then the next thing, I'll play you a country record from the 1940s. Yeah, but well. a, there's a different editorial kind of take, um, you, you know, between the, these modern TV and radio programmes relative to... I suppose the whistle test and uh, you know Radio One, Radio Three yeah. era that, that you would have been involved in, in that um, they they seem rather too cosy 
with release uh, scheduling yeah. of artists yeah. that uh, major labels want to uh, uh, plug. Yeah. And uh, that, that takes all the edges off things a yeah. bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, and you don't get now the radio that I, I, I like to think to some extent you got with my radio programs and you certainly got with Peel's. Um, you don't get that kind of radio, which is the most exciting. And I'll tell you what that is. When Roger Wright, the controller of Radio 3, took me out for a lunch soon after I was dropped by Radio 1 in 2000 to make way for yet another dance music programme, because they were mesmerised by dance music back then. Anyway, Roger Wright, <clears throat> the controller of Radio 3, took me out for a lunch. And this is it was at this lunch where he said, I want you to come and join us at Radio 3. I said, what do you want me to do, Roger? He said, exactly what you've been doing on Radio 1. And, you know, it seemed so incongruous on Radio 3. And I said, okay, and why do you like, you know, why do you think my program, programs will fit in on Radio 3? He said to me, what I like about your music programs is, he said, I never know what's coming next. And I thought, bang on. That's exactly the feeling, you know, I hope I create among the listeners, where you don't know what's coming next. Um, because radio is so boring if you do. And that's that's what's wrong with a lot of six music. You know that you're gonna hear yet another indie band going dun 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 Jesus Christ give us some light and shade. It's so grey. Grey is the word that comes to mind. Yeah, and, and yours was a, a, a very uh, particular uh, blend in your uh, Radio 1 to Radio 3 shows. I mean, if we look at the session guests that you had over the years, Andy, obviously there's a lot of international ones, which we'll, we'll speak about in a second. But yeah. one thing, uh, looking through the list, um, is that, um, you, you know, you had repeat visits from people like Robin Hitchcock and Kevin Coyne and Brent yeah, yeah, Bogart yeah, yeah. and yeah. Ivor Cutler. and. <laughs> These guys, um, they are uh, definitely square pegs and round holes in, yeah. in, in terms yeah. of uh, modern music presentation. Did, did you have a particular affinity with their Britishness and possibly a bit of their eccentricity? Oh, sure. I mean, not necessarily Britishness, um, but I've always had an affinity with square pegs in round holes and misfits uh, and uh, those who celebrate the misfit uh, and outsiders. Yeah, I mean, I think... Kevin Coyne uh, is a prime example of that. Uh, and eccentrics and oddities, yeah. And there, were, there was no, no one more eccentric and odd than either. Um, and, um, yeah, yes, I definitely was always inclined to those kinds. But I also thought they were hugely talented too. And in that, um, that way of so many people who were, who were a bit uh, unconventional, but very talented. They weren't getting, I didn't think, the recognition that they deserved. See, they didn't have to just be British, you know. I mean, yeah. the very last live in the studio guest on my, on my final programme for Radio 1, standing there playing and singing in the studio with me, was the great Warren Zevon. Um, you know, farewell Radio 1, what a way to go out. And, and <clears throat> my penultimate show, the week before that, I'd had Lou Reed in the studio. Now, you know, Lou Reed... Uh, it wasn't the lovable figure that um, Warren Zevon was. But, you know, nevertheless, we, we pulled them in, didn't we? <laughs> so you certainly did. Uh, my, my personal favourites are probably around about the same era. You, you, you had um, a collaboration between Kevin Coyne and uh, Brennan Croker around about the 
time of their album, Life Was Almost Wonderful. Uh, I mean, those two together, they could have been a double act uh, on stage, really, couldn't they? Yeah. I think they did do Um, some gigs. They did do some gigs together, I think. Yeah. And uh, also Corner Shop around that time, they're they're certainly another band that really don't fit. Um, And probably if they were trying to break through today, they they would have a snowball's chance, really, wouldn't they? Um. I really don't know, you know, it's uh, it's hard to say. I just thought they were good. You know, that was that was the only measure that I ever used for whether, it, whether I was choosing records to play on the programme or I was choosing studio or session guests. Are they any good? Right, we'll have them on. You know, I mean, there was some, for me, I was just, just amazing. Like, to have one of the real big heroes like Warren Zevon there in the studio. And... Um, and then there's a massive talent that never really got the recognition he deserved. Uh, um, who never got the recognition, I should say. And another one that really sticks in my mind was May 1998, when um, even after Radio 1 said, no, I couldn't have him because he was too old. Can you believe? I found myself sitting in Maidervale studio, surrounded by Willie Nelson and his entire family band, who then played for the next two hours throughout the whole of the program. Um, and I just I just said to uh, whoever was my producer at the time, I don't care what they've said upstairs, Radio 1 management, we are not turning down Willie Nelson on the grounds that he, at the time, he was 60-odd, you know, ridiculous. It's amazing because Willie Nelson released a record last week, I think. He did? Yeah, he yeah. did, yeah. 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 And I've also been listening to his son, Lucas Nelson, who sounds remarkably like him as well. So, oh, I haven't heard him yet. Is he good? He is good, yeah. He's got a band called The Promise of the Real, who actually also... I, do I think so. Is this the lad that plays with Neil Young? Yes, I was yeah. going to say right. Neil Young, okay. yeah. And yeah. Um, again, it's kind of light country-ish rock sort of stuff, but um, you can hear, the, hear that his voice is the same as Willie Nelson's. It's, it's well worth yeah. a listen to if you get a chance, honestly. Um, All right. Thanks. Okay. Michael, on you go. Yeah, um, probably another um, strand of uh, your your career in Radio One, Radio Three was your interest in in African music, sure. and the and um, obviously the Bundu Boys are, are you'd be well known um, uh, supporter and friend of them. Uh, I remember uh, having a chat with you just before Radio Three gig at the Edinburgh Festival some years ago. Uh, it was Robin Hitchcock and the Bundus were were playing that. And uh, I was asking you about a band, uh, John Shibadura and the Tembo Brothers. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you were telling me the sorry tale of what had happened to them um, with so many deaths within the band. It was um, terrible. That that was true of so many musicians in Zimbabwe of that era. You know, I mean, another of my big favourites. Yes, of course, there was John Shibadura and the Bundus. And and there was another group called the Four Brothers uh, who were... uh, you also toured the UK quite a few times. A really lovely blokes as well, and great band. And all you know, all I think there's one. It's a minute now. Let me work this out. I think there's only one one Bundu boy, possibly two. Two two Bundu boys of, of that period of the late 1980s still alive. Um, yeah. John Chibadura is dead. I don't know about the, the rest of his group. Um, there's a couple of the band are dead as well. Yeah, uh, uh, I think. I think all the four brothers are dead. Um, and it was, um, I don't know. I, I don't know the particular circumstances of every death, but, you know, lifestyle and um, uh, AIDS uh, just went through 
the musical communities in Southern Africa, particularly Zimbabwe, like a bushfire. Yeah. That's tragic. I think so. Um, so speaking of traveling, I mean, you've done a bit of an Alan Wicker style travel logs between, but rather unusual places. Obviously you went to Rwanda genocide in 84. Well, that wasn't, that wasn't to make a, a travel no, program. No, no, was, I, that... no, I understand, understand. And then the Axis of Evil tour of two thousand and one. I mean, how did they all come about? I mean, it was just was, um, was... well, the, the the Rwanda thing was because um, I all for a long time taken an interest in what was going on everywhere across the African continent, and when it kicked off in early April in nineteen ninety four, I had a friend that was working as a producer in. Uh, BBC News, Radio News. And um, he rang me up to ask me how we interpret this. I mean, reports were sketchy. There, were, there weren't really any reporters in the country. Right. And I gave him my view on what I thought was going on. This was when President Juvenal Habri Yamana's plane was shot down just outside of Kigali. And then immediately the barricades went up and, and the killing started. Um, and the next thing I know is, uh, a producer for the Today programme, or the editor of the Today programme on Radio 4, rang me up and asked if I'd go to Burundi next door to do the story, will it spread to Burundi, with it having a similar ethnic mix. Um, and I said, I can tell you now, without you wasting your money on an air ticket to Bujumbura, Burundi, uh, and the hotel bills, that it's not going to spread to Burundi. Anyway, he you know, chose to disregard that and sent me to Burundi anyway, where I'd wrapped up and done that story and sent it back to London in the first 24 hours. And we're spending the rest of the time with me, producer friend who they sent with me from BBC News, Jeff Spink, uh, sitting there drumming our fingers on on, uh, on the uh, the counter of the bar of uh, the Novotel Bujumbura, wondering what we were going to do for the next week or so. And we, then we were approached by a bloke one night who introduced himself. I can still remember his name. It's funny how some of these things stick. As the Bujumbura representative of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the good guys who were try, trying to stop the, 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 uh, the genocide right. and over, overthrow the, the genocidal government. And he said, do you want to go in? And we'd promised everyone back in London, family and um, colleagues that we wouldn't step into Rwanda but he made such a he made such a plausible case for he'd make sure we went into an area already controlled by the RPF and they'd look after us and we'd be very safe and me being such a nosy bugger I said yes so <laughs> the, the, the following day we crossed over the northern border of Burundi into southern Rwanda and and that's how I found myself in there and I'm really glad I did you know yeah. it was horrific it, it was it was um it was. It really was horrific, uh, but um, I got the job done, and I'm, I'm proud of what we did there under the, the most appalling circumstances. And we were also we were nearly killed in an ambush, uh, but it was it wasn't getting reported properly. Uh, it was it was it was notable for its its particular savagery, and that reporters journalists weren't being afforded the normal, almost diplomatic immunity that the, 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 in those days you found when you were in other conflict zones. Right. In other words, uh, the, the government killers regarded journalists as a target. Um, 
And the other thing that, the other reason that, if I, you know, I, I was there and it, and it was otherwise being unreported was that Mandela was about to be inaugurated as the first president of a free South Africa. And so oh, every journalist and, and uh, his dog um, and even all the BBC Africa specialists were understandably, you know, down in Pretoria uh, to cover that historic occasion. And the combination of that and Rwanda being particularly savage, savage no, one, no one was very keen to go in there except me. So that's how that happened. Okay. And you, you asked about going to all the axis of evil countries. That's dead simple. When Roger Wright, who I mentioned earlier, the, um, uh, the controller of Radio 3, when he first took me on, um, he, uh, soon after that lunch, he said to me, now what I've always enjoyed, Andy, he said, um, are the programmes you've made in the past where you, you, you go off to some of these uh, perhaps more remote, remote countries and you bring us back a documentary which combines travel uh, the politics of the place and the music. I said, oh, yes, Roger, I like doing those. He said, where would you like to go for us? And Bush had just some weeks before, or some days before even, delivered that blockhead State of the Union address written by one of his aides <laughs> called David Fromm, who had coined, Fromm in his speech for Bush, had coined this phrase, the axis of evil, which had lumped together Iran, Iraq and North Korea. So quick as a flash, and I was being kind of flippant as well, never expecting Roger to, to agree. I turned around and I said to Roger, well, I'd like to do all three axes of evil countries, please, Roger. I'd already been to one of them, to North Korea, a couple of times. Then he looked at me across his desk and he said, hmm, I'll see what I can do. And the next thing I know, as I get a phone call from a dear friend and producer at Radio 3, Roger Short, uh, to say, um, Andy, I've got the tickets for Iran. <laughs> <laughs> so we were off. And, and we did them and thoroughly enjoyed all three. Um, Iran, there's a program on at the minute on the, I think it's BBC4 actually, called The Art of Persia. Um, oh, yeah. And Iran looks an absolutely spectacular country. I never oh, it have, is. Yeah. It is. It is. And there's an awful lot of people in that country who, whilst they might not necessarily, you know, uh, be fans of the foreign policy of the United States in particular, there are an awful lot of very sophisticated, very well-educated... You never hear about these people in Iran in regular no. news coverage. Very sophisticated, highly educated people in Iran who, whilst not feeling warm towards the United States, also loathe the kind of medieval theocracy that they have to live under. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, it's a fascinating place. Yeah, I've been I've been to Saudi. I wasn't very impressed with Saudi, but that was I was there for work, so um, I didn't yeah. get I didn't get to see. I work in oil and gas, so I wasn't the best of the country. All oh, so right, I'm, I'm sure. No, I'm no, sure, no. That, sure, that, so. There's there's another medieval backward place as well. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. So okay, yeah. cool, cool. All right, Appall appalling place. Yeah, I didn't enjoy look, it at look, all. Look what they, look what they did with that um, journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That, that, that little thug will get his comeuppance before long. He, 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 that Mohammed bin Salman. But I see the Saudis now are, are buying their way into kind of, um, you know, they're hosting these big sporting events now. Yeah, they're dying to, they're, they're dying to um, boxing uh, and all they're, sorts. They're, they're, yeah, they're just, they're just trying to do a global PR job. Yeah. Well, perhaps, perhaps a starting point might not be to kill journalists, might not be to lock up dissidents, and perhaps not to chop people's heads off in public on a Friday lunchtime. Well, that's, that's the... we, we might look we might look upon them as a little more civilized than 
uh, than those activities suggest. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so going forward. So, all right, cool. Thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, so, um, Andy, we had a little chat before we, we, we came on air uh, with regard to your um, love affair with Bob Dylan, which is um, for oh, right. a, a, a restricted period of his career. And we're also uh, joined today by uh, one of our um, good friends, uh, Rod, who is a Dylan fan of um, some repute as well. So we thought okay. it might be a bit of fun for the two of you to have a little chat about his Bobness. Sure. Over sure. to Rod. <laughs> Right. Hello there, Andy. Hi, Rod. Um, you've probably spoken about this quite a few times, but would you like to cast your mind back to the the goods that your pot of hedgerow jam got you in 1985? Oh, it was just ridiculous. Um, you know, what you've got to remember about that is I, would, I just started um, on, um, and not been long on the whistle test. I was fairly new to broadcasting. I was very inexperienced as an interviewer, and it all happened rather suddenly and certainly unexpectedly. You know, in the, I'd been flying back from Boston the night before, where I'd done some job for a filming job for Whistle Test in Massachusetts, in Boston. And on on the plane on the way over, I bought well, I bought a copy at the airport, Boston Airport, a copy of that uh, American music magazine Spin to read on the plane. And in the news in briefs down one column at the edge of uh, one of the um, pages near the front, it, it was running through, you know, little snippets of news about different p- people. And it just said, dot, 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 Bob Dylan recording with Dave Stewart in London, dot, dot, dot. And then the next item. And I looked at this and I thought, really? That means Bob's at the end of my street. Because Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox had a recording studio in Crouch End, the neighbourhood in North London, where I, I lived for 24 years. Um, their studios in a converted church was at the end of my street. So this registered, and I, then I guess I fell asleep and got off the plane the following morning at Heathrow and got back to Crouch End, jet-lagged, you know, really tired, fell asleep on, on the carpet in the lounge and woke up mid-morning. And as I sort of came round, I said to myself, Dylan's at the end of the street. I must go and see him. It all seemed perfect. It all seemed perfectly reasonable and logical at the time. So I set off towards the church studios, and I had to pass on my way a whole food shop. Um, and I thought I must take Bob a present. So I spotted this whole food shop, swung into it, and just put my hand on the first thing that I came to uh, on the first shelf, and it was a jar of something called Hedger or Jam. So I paid for this and then beetled off to the studio, rang on uh, the, the, the doorbell, the, the, so the secretary receptionist came on the entry phone and, and I heard myself saying, hello, uh, whatever she was called, um, is, um, is Dave in, please, Dave Stewart. And I knew Dave Stewart, you know, I used to see him at the shops. Uh, that's, that's where he lived and worked. And we had a good relationship, nice bloke. And... Um, so she said, yes, hang on, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll bring him, I'll get him to come down. So the next thing is the door opens of the church, and they're blinking in the morning sunlight in a pair of dark sunglasses. It's Dave Stewart. And I heard myself saying to him, hello, Dave, have you got Bob in there? <laughs> and he looked at me for a second, and he said, yeah. I said, Bob, can I come in and see him? And he said, yeah, all right then. So I was led inside. 
been taken upstairs where there was this huge studio um, and um, there were, was like a quadrangle made of those Hessian screens on casters that they have in recording studios, usually to corral the drummer, you know, um, behind them in an almost soundproof box. Uh, and coming from within this quadrangle of Hessian screens on casters was the most god-awful, out-of-tune clanging on an electric guitar. And um, it was just so surreal. Annie Lennox was lurking in the shadows. And Dave Stewart motioned me to help him roll one of these Hessian screens to one side. And as we did so, we revealed him. There he was, standing on his own in, in, in the middle of these uh, Hessian screens, banging away on this... Um, uh, this Fender Stratocaster, uh, wearing a blue and white leather jacket and cowboy boots, and much taller than I imagined he'd be. I'd read in all the books about how he was small and wiry or elfin or uh, lots of descriptions about... You, you, often, you were always given the impression that he was quite small. He didn't seem small to me. Um, very unshaven. And anyway, we sat down on a drum riser when he finished making this dreadful din on the guitar. Uh, and we, Dave introduces us, and then I hand him the jam. And I said, Bob, I, I, I brought you this. I said, for, for everything you've done for me. <laughs> he looked at it, and the description I always use, because it, it's, it, it is, it just captured perfectly his reaction. He was turning this jar of jam round in his hand as a chimpanzee might if you gave that chimpanzee a mobile phone. Uh, <laughs> He was just kind of turning it over and looking at it and thinking, what the hell's this? And then I heard myself saying, it's jam, Bob. Hedgerow jam, pause. Made with real hedgerows. <laughs> and he just, put it down, he, just, he just put it down on the drum riser. And as far as I know, Rod, it's still there to this day. <laughs> and then I said to him, I work for a rock music programme on the television. Um, very highly regarded music programme, long established. Uh, called The Whistle Test, and Dave Stewart sort of backing me up and said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a great programme, Bob, The Whistle Test. And I said, I wonder whether you'd talk to me for it, if I can get a, if I can get a, uh, in those days, a film crew round here. And he said, yeah. Do you know, and he was quite chatty and amiable and talkative. And I, I find it hard to forgive him for this. When I phoned The Whistle Test office, and of course they had a complete fucking seizure when they got me phone call, that I'm sitting there with Bob Dylan, and he, yes, he'll talk to us, He'd never given, he'd never given an interview to the British broadcast media before, radio or television. There isn't one. Um, so this was a really big deal. Um, wow. And so, the, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he did the two TV specials for the BBC in 1965, where he just two half hours, where he just strummed the guitar and sang. But there was no, uh, there was no interview with him, and he'd, he'd never done one before this. Anyway, when this crew finally turned up, um, I was bloody useless, absolutely hopeless. I was so nervous and terrified. But I thought it was rather unprofessional of Dylan in that he'd been quite chatty until the film crew turned up. And as soon as the camera started to roll, he went monosyllabic. Um, and I thought that was pretty poor. He could have said, if he, if, you know, if he didn't want to do an interview, he, sh he should have said you know, something like, no, Andy, it's been nice to meet you, but I'm afraid I'm not doing a television interview. Okay. 
And, and have you met, have you met him since that time? Or no, 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 I've not met him since. No, maybe the jam didn't, didn't meet the expectations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did he look like someone who was a uh, a bit lost? Did you have an? Any... I, I, I was. Yeah. No, no, Bob. Bob, I think he always looks lost. I mean, did you think he knew what he was doing, or was he just not really? No, I can't say. I can't. I can't say he was. Although he was, you know, he was friendly enough. Uh, I, I wouldn't say he's a, he's a guy who's uh, over troubled with um, w- with social skills and gregarious qualities. Um, and it, he, he always looks like he doesn't know what's going on, and he probably doesn't. Look, but put yourself in his shoes. You, you've been acclaimed as a living god since the age since, since you were twenty years old, and um, this year he'll be seventy nine. Um, <clears throat> It can't have been a normal life, can it? Uh, to, to have been to have been seen as the sportsman of a generation, or even as I say, a, a, a living god. Um, it must have been a weird life. Yeah, uh, no, no. So no, no. It's hard, hardly surprising. He's he's not he's not going to be uh, you know uh, someone who's leaning on the bar and cracking jokes all the time, and is is um, is great conversational company. Yeah, no, I was thinking more musically. Uh, with what well, or lost record? Um, well, I don't think he's made a decent record since Desire. So I suppose that's as lost as you can be. That's that's forty four. <laughs> that's forty four years ago, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but you know, d- 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 we 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 have to ask ourselves in the case, of, certainly in the case of, of Dylan. But I think it, it applies to uh, all creative people. Really, do we expect too much of them? You know, I mean, what an amazing body of work from 1962, his first LP, to 1976, over a relatively short period of time. But look what he gave us in 14 years. Um, and, you know, is it, are we not being unreasonable to, ex, to expect that they should carry on being as creative and as, ima- as, in, and, and as imaginative as that for, for decades? Um, I don't think we should expect them to be, no. I mean, yeah. he, he's, he, it's, he was perhaps, he perhaps run out of ideas after Desire. It certainly sounds like it. <laughs> but then you get bands like the Stones releasing new music just before lockdown. So, you know, so many people do think. They well, they are, extra, yeah, they are extraordinary. They, 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 they really are. Um, I went to see them, what will it be now, the latest occasion? You know, I've seen them many times over the years. I went to see them about two years ago at Manchester United's football ground. And I had to sit there and think to myself, this is remarkable. Uh, I mean, they, they had a catwalk running right from the, the stage at one end of the stadium to what would have been the halfway line, you know, on, on the football pitch. And he was prancing and dancing and skipping along there and doing his, you know, his usual... Uh, and like he was doing when he was 25, 28 years old. Their, their energy and their enthusiasm seemed... Completely undiminished. Yeah, me and Michael saw that tour in Murrayfield in Edinburgh, and mm-hmm. they were they were good that night. They that were, good. yeah, they were good. So. They're still they're still really really good, and they are, um, you know, they get a lot of flack for for being old. I mean, it's funny business the the, the music business. We wouldn't tolerate people being criticised for their age in any any other area of public life, but the Stones have been uh, get mocked for being. Uh, 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 septuagenarians, you know, uh, yeah. but they are they are unbelievable. And I had 
I, I simply wrote him a letter. And by doing that, I got a face-to-face interview with Keith Richards. Um, uh, we did it in the... In, in he had a suite at the Savoy Hotel in order to, in order to just meet me. Um, and I did this for the one show about three or four years ago. Wow. And, you know, what was, I always thought I'd get on with Keith Richards. And the way I got the interview is I said to him that I don't want to come and talk about you or the Rolling Stones. I said, what I want to talk to Keith Richards about is who are Keith Richards' guitar heroes? Yeah. And so, he, so he, I said, you, you, we can, we've got time to talk about two of them, Keith. So he named Robert Johnson, the 1930s, 1930s blues man, and, he met, and Chuck Berry. And I went to talk to him about the guitar techniques of those two people and why he liked their records. Do you know, and what was great, I thought, for all his achievements, for all his wealth, for all his fame, for, for the last, good Lord, 55 years, what was really likable about Keith Richards was I could tell, because he twinkled with enthusiasm when he spoke about these, about Robert Johnson and Chuck Berry, for all, the, all those things I've just mentioned, he is at heart still, just like me and you, he's still a fan. Yeah, maybe Bob's just tired of life now. Maybe maybe he's just kind of yeah. I can't, I, yeah. yeah. I, I can't think. Uh, it, you don't feel that Dylan's a fan of anyone else. You know, Will. <laughs> oh, I think Will, you need to listen to the new album, Andy. Yeah, who he's a fan of. Go on. You no, know, he, he clearly likes Warren. Warren Zevon. Yes. Oh really? You know, Why, how does I mean, he reference Warren Zevon? The the year that what you. You said you last saw him at the Docklands. That would be 2002. So yeah, that would be about right, yeah. The, the American tour that followed it, he was doing four or five Warren's Even songs. Was he? Good for him. Good for him. And he, was, had some very, he had some very kind words recently. I did notice this. Yeah. No, he when, was when, doing, when, when, when dear old John Prine died, yes. um, <clears> he had some, there were some very kind remarks from Dylan about John Prine. Not he'd made at the time of his death, but people had... had uh, I'd unearthed from, from years ago about what a big admirer of John Prine's he was. Mm-hmm. Right. No, but he was doing stuff like, um, oh, accidentally like a martyr, boom, boom. Oh, really? Lawyers, Get guns away. and money. Dylan did lawyers, guns and money? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he did it, yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. In fact, I, I'd, in I'd fact, like to hear he quotes... Yeah, with Who's Aiden? <laughs> oh, <All> right. <laughs> well, well, I, I'd say I, well, that's been a fantastic chat, Andy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pleasure, boys. Nice, nice talking to you as well. Can I bring Marcus in for a question? He's been sitting here patiently. Yeah, you've I'll got, go on, Marcus. Yeah, you've, you've, yeah. Got, you've, you've, you've got three and a half minutes before us cut right. off. I should so. say, Andy, uh, Marcus is my uh, son who's been spending lockdown playing music and learning guitar instead of doing his homework. Okay. Good for you, Marcus. Good man. <laughs> yeah, I was just curious, uh, what's Lou Reed like in person? Awful. Oh. <laughs> well, he's probably he's probably a lot a lot better company now he's dead. Should we say that? <laughs> uh, uh, he, is an ab- he was an absolutely miserable, sour, um, unpleasant piece of work. And do you know, having spent uh, nearly, uh, having, having spent what is it, thirty five? No, forty years 
uh, and more in the music business. They're closely attached to the music business now, dealing with rock stars on, almost on a daily basis. If you go right back to Leeds University as well and putting on those gigs, it's amazing that um, I, I can I can really name only one or two, possibly three rock stars who I found unpleasant. I think that's a that that's astonishing and an astonishingly good track record, and it says a lot about. Uh, the, the people who populate what's regarded as a very narcissistic industry. Yeah. Um, the, the, most of them have been absolutely delightful. Uh, oh. But Lou Reed was not one of those. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. And I, I, had, I, had, I had a few brushes with, with Lou Reed. And um, on the last one, where I put two concerts on with him in about 2006 on the Isle of Man, the Isle of Man government asked me to arrange some concerts for them. And um, through my contacts, I got two nights on Lou Reed. And uh, he was absolutely horrible with everyone <laughs> that uh, had to have dealings with him. But even, you know, the people doing the catering at the gigs, I mean, why be unpleasant to them? You know, they're there to look after you. Um, and um, the, the masseurs that he had us bring in to, to give him a massage, he was horrible to her. He was horri horrible to his own road crew. Um <laughs> But I got my own back on him gloriously on, on the second evening. But I shall have to leave that story, boys, until the next time we speak. Because... Well, well you've, you've ruined Marcus's image of Lou Reed now, obviously. He was a true rock and roll originator of that uh, well, period. There were, well, two people, there were two people who created rock music out, out of what before then was either called pop music or beat music, if you were a high court judge. Um, and, and they did it simultaneously. They did it around 1965. One was Dylan, working independently of each other, of course, and the other was Lou Reed. Oh, wow. And they made remarkable advances in the, in, in, to create, you know, the music that we love. Okay. Um, and, but I'm, I'm afraid he was just a, 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 a ghastly human being. <laughs> well, Andy, you've been the absolute opposite of that today. You've been absolutely fantastic. Has. And uh, I'm going to, we're going to get cut off in 20 seconds. So just thanks for right, everybody. Team. So thanks for no, your thank, time. Thanks for your and thank time. You for, thank you for having thanks, me. Thanks, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. You, you, you've drawn me away from the DIY. Excellent. Have a good day. <laughs> thanks a lot then. Thanks. Bye. Uh, so long. Right. Well, I have to say that was very entertaining. Um, it seems a rather strange link to how come we got Andy Kershaw on the podcast, but my friend Diane um, from the SPE in Aberdeen uh, was a buddy and got in touch and asked if he'd come on, and he did. And it's a fair to say he didn't hold back, did he? He didn't. Uh, I mean, Marcus, uh, I take it uh, there's nothing like having your heroes brought down to earth for you, is there? Uh, well, I never listened to him thinking he was the nicest person in the world, but I've certainly got a thought in my mind now when I'm... Uh, yeah, you're referring to Lou Reed, I hasten to add. <laughs> yeah, so I asked him, so at the end of the interview, he alludes to the fact that he managed that Lou Reed wasn't a particularly nice person and that he'd managed to get Lou Reed back somehow for, for, for him being a horrible hood of a dude all the years. So I asked him what the story was, and, and he declined to come up with it, but did say that at some point in the future he'd be come back on to tell us the story. But he's, he's certainly a very entertaining um, chap. I mean, he's obviously got, he's got an opinion. He lets you have it. Um, very honest, I guess. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, it was great for him to have some time with him, actually. So 
Yeah, no, no filter there at all. And um, uh, you two guys bore the brunt of it when it came to discussing Bob Dylan, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> we, we were hoping to uh, review the new Dylan album uh, with, with Andy, but he hadn't heard it, obviously. So um, we're going to leave it over uh, to uh, Rod Marcus to do that now. Um, a pretty different album, uh, you guys, uh, for Bob, bearing in mind his recent output. Yes, um, I mean, the, the thought in everyone's mind was that we'd never see this day. It was eight, eight years since uh, Tempest, the last album of original material. And what we've got is, I think, beyond what anyone could reasonably expect. It's a fantastic album. Marcus? I mean, I'm... I mean, since I started listening to Dylan about a year or two ago properly, this is the first album he's put out. And it was quite a good experience to finally have something where I'm listening to it for the first time when everyone else is, because before it was almost like catching up with everything else. Yeah. So it's good to see things as they're coming out. And in terms of the um, uh, musical arrangements, uh, are we seeing uh, much of a progression away from the American songbook albums, do you think? Well, I, I think that a lot of what he learnt from singing the songbook is reflected in the album, in his vocal style, and it's certainly mic'd up in a particular way that I think he must have got from Al Schmidt, who was the uh, engineer on, the, on those albums. Um, it's magnificently clear. It's... Um, very precise, tune-wise, um, Bob always, I think, has difficulty in coming up with a, a good set of tunes, and these are mostly very elliptical, as in it's the same notes played over and over, over which, in some cases, Bob sings, other times it's almost narration. Um, but the, the lyrics are wonderful. There's lines in there that are extremely funny. There's others that are in the same couplet. He can go from Greek mythology to Shakespeare to, you know, a reference to an American president of some time back. And there are, there are lines you thought you would never hear Dylan say. Um, I can tell a proddy from a mile away. <laughs> uh, the size of your cock will get you nowhere. Uh, that, that's uh, somebody on the internet has, has pointed out. That's a line from uh, Juvenal, who, uh, of course, is another ancient Greek. Yeah. So, but but um, it's just packed with dense wordplay. Um, now, I have to, to, to fess up here. I've not listened to this apart from Murder Most Foul, which I think came out as kind of a prelim to this. But, um, and, that, and that's a great track. It's what, 17 minutes? It's a long yeah. yeah, so yeah. and so. In fact, I think on the physical release, on the CD, certainly it's a separate piece altogether. So, um, But does, does it fit with the album, though? It kind of looks like it's on its side, like it's, it's off to the side sort of thing, or is it? Um, there's been a quite a lot of debate about this uh, because the 
album is called Rough and Rowdy Ways, but the second disc is just titled Murder Most Foul. So there is a, a school of thought that thinks because it was released first and got such uh, huge amounts of publicity, including um, Bob's first number one single in the rock download charts on Billboard, that it was a last minute edition. Um, my personal view is that it was always intended to be there. Right. Uh, it's it fits. Um, I don't think you could say it as, as some people have that it was possibly recorded two or three years earlier. Um, mind you, I think that was said before they saw which musicians were on it, as it's clear it's the the same musicians on on the whole album. Um, but that it's almost like. Uh, not quite free-form jazz, but there is no tune as such. It, you know, there's a bit of skittering cymbals. I think there's cello on there, um, sort of wafts of of uh, guitar. But it's um, it's like a a poem with a bit of, okay. or even a monologue with a bit of musical backing. Okay, and you think you know, obviously we're in lockdown at the minute. But you think if we were out of lockdown, you think Dylan would tour this album? You think that's something he would do, or? Uh, Bob being Bob, he very rarely plays songs off a new album when it comes out. Um, uh, when Together Through Life came out in 2009, it was uh, during uh, the British leg of the European tour, and he played no song off it until he got to the final destination, Dublin, when he played what was possibly one of the two poorest songs on the album. Um, and then you got the rest over the following year. It, it was the same with Tempest. Okay. Uh, when it came out, there was nothing played. Um, but the, the following... Actually, no, I'm getting mixed up there. He did start playing it in 2012. Um, I'm thinking of 2006 when Modern Times came out. A friend of mine flew to the States to be in America on the tour on the release date and he saw that show and the next two and there was not a sniff of a song from it. Really? So I don't think he would have done anything this year unless he would have brought something in maybe the October legs of the tour. Okay. Um, and, and would he would he have been prolific during lockdown? I think he would have been recording more stuff, you think? Or is he not that I don't I don't know much about Bob Dylan to be honest, but would he be right. a, he, he gave an interview um to the New York Times where he said he'd been doing things, but it wasn't writing songs. <laughs> but he's got so many sidelines now. He's got his whiskey to oversee. He's got his, um, he's got a workshop where he does his welding at his house. He's got his paintings. His property uh, yeah. empire. Pardon hasn't me? He, hasn't he got yeah. a property empire? Yeah. Yes. He, he apparently has houses all over the world. Okay. And uh, Rod, just one other observation about this, uh, and you know, not having heard a lot of the album, I, I, I don't know if it's a thread that's wor worth exploring, but when you think of um, a number of uh, Bob's contemporaries in the way of uh, Johnny Cash and uh, um, Leonard Cohen and possibly a bit younger David Bowie, all these guys came up with kind of um, valedictory albums, I suppose you'd call them, towards the end of their career. Um, do, you, do you feel that about this album or, uh, you know, is there any kind of common thread th uh, through the songs um, in that regard in terms of, you know, 
uh, mortality and, uh, and yeah, that's, uh, that's always been since Bob put out Time Out of Mind in 1997, which had lots of musings on mortality, um, particularly not dark yet. And people thought that that might have been his last album, but luckily he's still there turning them out. Um, but no, that is, that's been Bob's modus operandi for a while. Um, he tells you about the world as he sees it. Um, and uh, whether this one's, there's probably more references to death in this one and much more looking back. Uh, but um, I, I just come back to the lyrics, which are fantastic. Never mind that they're about death. Um, yep. The whole the whole album is pretty much top notch material. There's one or two I might quibble over. Um, you know, there is a limit to twelve bar blues, I think. But if you look at Bob's waited eight years to put out this album, Neil Young turns out albums with regularity, and I think if you took Neil Young's output from the last eight years and picked possibly the one or two good songs off each album, he could have done the same thing and had one album full of excellent material. Yeah. Um, it, but, yes. Sorry. Yeah, so Bob's got probably a better sort of quality measure than Neil Young does. You're right, Neil Young puts out album after album and some of them are just, just pretty miserable stuff sort of thing. So yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Oh, well, so it's worth a listen to then, Rod. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> one, one of my friends takes the view that it's the best album by anyone ever. Wow. Okay, that's high, high praise indeed. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, uh, let's well, see if, if um, Terry can come up with a similar line of praise for the DMA's The Glow. Well, the first thing to say about this, Terry, is it's a fantastic looking record, isn't it? This limited <laughs> it, uh, heavyweight tricolor vinyl. It is, and I think people are really um, coming up with innovative ways to kind of do the colored vinyl now. So, this is basically, you say it's three colors, sort of a third, a third, a third. Um, uh, sort of green, red, and sort of blue sort of colour. So it is. It looks lovely, actually. And I'm guessing. I mean, I'm guessing it must be fairly easy to do now because people are coming up with all kinds of sort of things. But um, not a band I knew a lot about, to be honest. And I knew they were Australian. Um, this is their third album, um, The Glow, which I think was a delayed album from the start of lockdown. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was due out in in sort of February, March. Um, sorry, for March, April. Uh, then was delayed, and obviously now they decided to bring it out. Um, their previous albums I had listened to are very much sort of a Brit pop, you know, Oasis kind of vibe, a bit of a strut, a bit of a sort of a attitude about them. But this one's a bit more. Uh, I've seen various reviews commenting on the kind of it's a lot more upbeat album for sure. Almost some sort of dancey songs on it. There's a song called Silver, which I think is their fastest stream song ever, which is a bit more moody, sort of starting and sort of builds up sort of thing. And um, there's some great hooks, there's some great tunes. Um, it's, it's definitely an album I'd like to, I'd like to see. They apparently supported Liam Gallagher when he played at the B&J Live last year. Um, yeah, so but they kind of enthralled to Oasis a bit, uh, Terry. They've been accused of that, I think, haven't they? Yeah, well, I think so. But this one, I mean, I listened to it a couple of times, you know, two or three times in a row, and actually I heard things like in The View, you know, from Dundee, a bit more sort of pop sensibility, a bit lighter touch to it, uh, a bit more colour in some of the songs. And... Um, I, I certainly have listened, every time I listen to it, I've, I've really enjoyed it actually, and I think it's a, it's a cracking album. Not not just the cover and, and, and the, the vinyl itself, but uh, I think it's um, it's an excellent album, well worth a listen to. Yeah, not still on the same level as Bob Dylan for sure, but uh, um, my Bob Dylan uh, peaked with Travelling Wilburys, I think. But 
That's a, so, 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 territory, territory. So, so sorry, sorry about that. So, but no, I, I like this album. I, I wasn't really sure what to make of it, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, well, like, so life is just a, a game of uh, changes. It's a great, great track, and uh, well worth a listen, actually. So, good. Um, I also picked up the vinyl version of Laura Marling this week, which I think was re- re- reviewed a few uh, podcasts ago. Uh, which again is a lovely album, well worth a listen. Uh, I've listened to it again, and I kind of figured out that it it sounds like a very live album, um, <laughs> because there's not much echo on it. It sounds like it's really kind of just like a, she's done it live, or it's in your, you know, it's very good. Um, and the cover, which I always thought was a picture, and I think it is a picture, but on the vinyl on the cover of the album, it looks like a sort of an oil painting, which is lovely actually. So. Although she's sitting here, currently staring across the floor at me at the minute, so that's the last thing I listen to. So there's yeah. a kind of nice loose feel to some of the songs, aren't there? Isn't there? There's a, a kind of comfortableness about it. Yeah, and I certainly I've listened to Laura Morning over the years, and it's certainly the most album I've enjoyed for a while. Um, and actually, listen to it again now, and having watched her show that she did what, a couple of months ago on live um, thing, it's it's a lot better. I think actually the album the album's well worth well worth a listen to. I think so, absolutely. So good. All right. Well, uh, I think that's uh, probably about us for this week. Um, thanks very much to uh, Rod and Marcus for joining us this occasion. I think we might have them back, Terry, at some stage. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to go and listen to Bob <laughs> Dylan. I'll, I'll listen to Bob Dylan next, Rod, I promise. So I've listened to all of them now. So. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> all right. Great. Until the next time. See you, bye. Thanks, guys. Bye.